So why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 uh, in your scriptures this morning. Matthew 12. We come into another story, another miracle, another great story here in the gospel. And, and much of the gospel and these miracles happen in a little town called Capernaum. If you go to Israel, that's a must stop. You gotta go to Capernaum because it's, it's, it's powerful for so many reasons. It's a beautiful little uh, place um, right on the northern, uh, northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and the, by the way, that Sea of Galilee, if you're looking for it, if you're driving around Israel, where's the Sea of Galilee? Um, you're actually looking for the sign that says Kinneret, uh, which means harp. And the modern na name of this uh, lake uh, is really what we would call it here in the United States, is, um, is Kinneret, which is, uh, means harp, because it's shaped like a, a harp is what they, why they call it that. But in the Bible times, it was known there to be the Sea of Galilee. And, um, and that's, that's where this little town Capernaum was. Now, you know, down on the lower western side was a town called Tiberias. And that's where all the, you know, a bunch of Gentiles and other people live. But Capernaum was this little Jewish community and in this beautiful setting right on the Sea of Galilee. And in fact, I've shown you some of this footage before, but it's this beautiful spot, that white building that we, in our drone shots that we got, um, that white building is, is uh, they call it the, the synagogue of Jesus because we know Jesus stood on that very spot. Uh, and we know that the miracle we're gonna read today happened in that synagogue. Now, the white walls there, they weren't there during the time of Christ. That was brought in about 100 years later. But the gray foundation that you see there with those gray rocks, that's, that's the original foundation. And so it's kind of fun to, you know, it's one of the places in Israel where you can say, yeah, Jesus stood right here. We know for sure that's where he stood. And not that that's giant other than it's just kind of brings home the reality of the stories of the Bible, which are kind of fun. Um, but this little town's uh, still in archaeological ruin. There's only a few buildings uh, that are built in, in commemoration of this destroyed city. Uh, there's, there's a big chapel that's built there. Also, the Millennium Falcon uh, uh, landed there. Um, I'll show you what I mean here in a second. But um, the, this, this synagogue, uh, the, the, the women would sit on the upper deck in the perimeter. That's what those pillars would be holding up a, a place where the women would be seated up high there. And then the men would be down in the lower section. Uh, and the more high class or whatever you were, you'd sit up toward the front. And then the lower class would start moving toward the back. And that's the way they did it. That was never what God wanted, but that's what the Jews did back in those days. Um, but, um, but when I say the Millennium Falcon, uh, um, the Jews, well, before I say that, these round stones, they found all these millstones, the cone-shaped stone with a ring on top. They would pour the grain in there and then they'd turn those stones around and it would grind the, the, um, the grain into, into powder. Um, and they thought, man, these people were really into their corn because there was hundreds and hundreds of these millstones. But as it turns out, this Capernaum, that's what they did. They were a millstone factory. Uh, and and, um, and that they, they made millstones in Capernaum and then dispersed them. And this little town just sits right on the, the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's just beautiful, beautiful spot. Now you might say, why doesn't anybody build something flashy or new uh, hotel or whatever there? Um, the answer is because Jesus cursed this and said that there would never again be uh, a city uh, that would be here where Capernaum was. And it's because he did so many miracles there, but they chose not to believe. There's the Millennium Falcon right there that landed. Um, actually, that's the uh, Catholic Church built a uh, ruined Peter's house uh, by building that over it. But be that as it may, uh, it's an amazing spot. And this is where this little uh, story happened, right inside of this place, this little uh, synagogue called uh, Capernaum. 
Now, if you go to that time, it would, it would be the Sabbath day um, when the people would come and uh, gather at the synagogues. Now, synagogues started um, back when the Jews went into exile into Babylon. They couldn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. Temple was destroyed. They were in captivity in Babylon. So they built these little synagogues around what was then Babylon. And the Jews would gather and talk about Torah. And uh, they would talk about, um, they would come and gather uh, and focus on the Lord. When they came back from captivity from Babylon, they brought their synagogues with them, if you would, the practice of having a synagogue in each little community. And they built these where the, the rabbis would come and read the, the scriptures and they would talk about uh, you know, what the scriptures mean. Uh, and the people would come on the Sabbath and gather in the synagogues. And that's what would be going on on this particular uh, Sabbath. Now the Sabbath, if you recall, um, started Friday night at sundown. That was the beginning of the Sabbath day. It still is in Jerusalem. If you go there to this day, once the sun goes down on, on Friday night, everything shuts down. Um, and then uh, it's all the way, the Sabbath from Friday night all the way through to the Saturday at sundown. And then all the stores reopen Saturday night at sundown uh, because uh, the Sabbath is officially over. But if you could put yourself in some of the people's sandals of, uh, of Bible days, um, you know, we've got a guy here who um, has a title that we're going to read about. He's called the man with the withered hand. Uh, interesting thing. How would you like to be known as the man with the withered hand? Uh, that's the guy that goes down in history as this. Um, but as it turns out, this poor guy, uh, when you think about historically, what did it mean for a guy who had a withered hand. In our day, where we're into accessibility and helping people who have various handicaps and stuff, which is great, in Bible times, not only did they not help them, but they believed those people were cursed. If you had a withered hand, you must have done something really wrong to become the man with the withered hand. Because of that, you would be moved from, you know, by the way, it was the ancient historian Jerome that writes about this man in Capernaum, and, so, and this is not in the Bible, but it's an extra biblical historical writings from Jerome, who said that this man with the withered hand was a, was a well-known stone cutter in that region. Maybe he made millstones, who knows? But he was a stone cutter and esteemed in the community. But when his hand became withered, he was no longer able to work and he became an outcast. That's what they did to people. Like, well, he must have sinned, so his hand is all withered. And he would be given a different position in the synagogue. He'd have to, instead of being up in the front where all the you know, esteemed community members were, they would have to be put off in the back. Can you imagine that? Uh, thinking that was a good idea. It'd be like here at Athey Creek if you came in and, and our you know, greeters and deacons would say, uh, so what do you do for a living? You're like, well, I'm a CEO of a company. Oh, come up front row right here. You're all the CEOs. What do you do? Uh, I work at Taco Bell. Um, way back out there, we'll find a chair maybe out in the gravel. We'll put you out there. Now at Athey Creek, it's kind of the opposite. If you work at Taco Bell, you're esteemed. You should probably be <laughs> sitting right here. We love our Taco Bell employees because um, that's where I pretty much live. But um, but no, uh, all that to say, uh, yeah, you know, uh, that, that was a horrible thing. There was like this class thing that you would just totally be disrespected. And it's very likely this poor guy on a Sabbath, when he'd go to the synagogue, he was probably usually accustomed to being more up where the respectable community would sit or be. But with a withered hand, he would have been off in the back corner and disregarded and esteemed as a guy who was probably a sinner who deserved what he got. But the Sabbath, man, it, it was crazy. Um, they had rules. You know, the, the man's wife, did you know on the Sabbath day, a woman was not supposed to look in the mirror? 
lest she sees an imperfection and works at trying to make herself more pretty, uh, that would be constituted as work, so you couldn't do that. So you were forbidden to look in the mirror on the Sabbath day. Um, uh, if you uh, had false teeth, uh, you couldn't wear your false teeth because you were carrying weight. In fact, the rule of thumb was if you were carrying something heavier than a dried fig, the dried fig of that day was sort of the, the, the weight test. If it's heavier than that, you can't lift it because that'd be constituting work. So, you know, if you had a wooden leg, you had to unscrew it and just sit down and hobble around, hop on one foot because it was the Sabbath day. Um, it just got weirder and weirder. What, what happened was the, the Lord established the Sabbath. He said, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Uh, the seventh day is supposed to be a day of rest. And the Lord just said that. Well, the Jews over centuries said, well, whatever you do, don't break the Sabbath. So we're gonna make more rules to make sure that nobody even comes close to breaking the Sabbath. And the rules got weirder and weirder. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, it's crazy. Uh, for example, let me give you like one story that's, that's so crazy about the Sabbath. And this is what legalism, this is what religious legalism does. It becomes insane. And you start to miss the whole point. The whole point was that Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing. Do you remember what Jesus said about this when Jesus was trying to undo this craziness? Jesus said there in Mark 2, 27, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, the Jews got this backwards. They had it totally backwards. Whatever you do, you can't break the Sabbath. Um, you know, it's, it, it's God's rules and why you can't have fun on the Sabbath. But that's missing the point. So, so how crazy did it get? Do you guys remember the history story of the Maccabean Revolt? Um, if you recall, it's what brought about the story of Hanukkah and the Festival of Lights. The Jews, instead of celebrating Christmas, they celebrate Hanukkah, which came out of the story of the Maccabees. Um, it was the solutions that came down with Antiochus Epiphanes, this horrible demonic kind of dude who slew up tens of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem and conquered Jerusalem. Um, one of the things, he was so crazy, Antiochus was, he slew a bunch of pigs and smeared pig's blood all over the temple in Jerusalem and made the priest drink pig's blood. One of the priests refused to drink pig's blood and so they took the priest out on the steps of the temple and slit his throat and killed him right there. Now, it just so happened that that priest had some sons. And the sons, well, picture in your mind's eye, SEAL Team 6, Army Ranger, Green Beret kind of guys. The, the, the priest's sons were these tough as nails, military kind of guys. And this is what we would call the Maccabees. The Maccabean revolt came from the sons of uh, Judah Maccabean. Uh, but all that to say, um, these guys got a little sort of army together and started wiping out the solutions. In fact, it's kind of biblically proportioned. These uh, Maccabees were so tough. Um, they, what are they called? One of them, the hammer. Like, like they, as soon as the army would attack, it's like when you watch Star Wars and all the stormtroopers just kind of die all the time and you just shoot them and they don't know how to shoot and they're all dying. That's what happened. The Maccabees came and just were wiping out the solutions except for one thing. These Maccabees would not fight on the Sabbath day. They were so into, oh, we can't work on the Sabbath, so forget warfare. And so literally they'd go into hiding. There's actually a true story where a small group of these uh, you know, Green Beret sort of Maccabees were hiding in a cave uh, on the Sabbath because they weren't gonna fight. And the solutions found the cave, went in, and the, the Jewish guys stood there and they, or they just sat on the stones in the cave and the, the solutions came in and hacked them all up into pieces because they were unwilling to pull the swords out of the sheaths and defend themselves because it was the Sabbath day. Um, that's how crazy the Sabbath day principle became. And that's, that was in you know, 167 to 160-ish BC. 
Um, so uh, by the time Jesus came around, they'd lost their minds when it came to the Sabbath. And that's important to this story. Because the religious leaders are trying to set a trap. By this time, Jesus is starting to become popular. He's going around and healing people and the crowds, the multitudes are like, whoa, what is he? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And the religious leaders are threatened. So, so what happens on this Sabbath day morning? Um, well, as it turns out, it, it happened right here in the synagogue of Capernaum. And let's take a look. It's Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses nine through 16 is our story. Let's take a look. It says in Matthew 12, verse nine, and when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? By the way, the rules of the healing of the stupid rules. Um, did you know if like somebody was on their way to church, tripped and fell on a stick, went through their arm and they're bleeding profusely. There the blood spurting. And, and what do you do on the Sabbath? Well, as it turns out, <laughs> they, the, the law actually said, they, they came up with these harebrained laws. You can apply a bandage to stop the bleeding. So that's kind of cool. At least they did that. But this is how weird it got. But whatever you do, you can't put ointment on any wound because you're starting a healing process. And that's actually doing the work of like a physician. So no ointment, but you can put a bandage on. Like you can read these writings of the Jews from the first century and it, it, it's, it's just nuts. So this is their rule. You can't heal someone on the Sabbath or help them. And they knew that. So now they, they know Jesus is going around healing everybody. So they've got the perfect scenario and they get him in the synagogue and they think we got him because there's, 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 they, they, they ask him the question, is it lawful for a man to heal someone on the Sabbath? And their answer would be absolutely not. But I love what Jesus says here. Um, it says in... in um, in verse 11, and, and Jesus said unto them, what man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on a Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath days? Jesus is sort of logically saying, are you kidding? Is it lawful to do something nice, to do something good? And the obvious Rhetorical answers, of course, but these guys had lost logic. They'd left reason years, centuries earlier. And so, so they're basically saying, you know, uh, is, it, is it lawful, Jesus said? Now, I have a theory, and I like to raise a red flag when I say, I'm about to tell you something that I think that's my opinion. Are you guys ready? You wanna hear my opinion? You're like, no. Well, I'm gonna give it to you. Um, I have a theory that I bet one of these Pharisees, these religious guys, on the way to church synagogue that day, one of their sheep fell into a hole. I have a theory that that probably happened. And the Pharisee's like, oh no, because the rule said you can't get your sheep out of the hole. That's the rule. You let it die, or hopefully it survives till Sunday where you can pull them out of the hole. But I bet you, it, when we get to heaven, you can ask Jesus. I'll bet you one of those dudes were like, oh man, on the way to the synagogue, my sheep's in the hole. And he looked this way and he looked that way and nobody was looking. So he reached in and pulled the sheep out of the hole, took off, and then he went to the church. And then Jesus said, which one of you? <laughs> Having a sheep fall in a hole? Like, I, I just wonder. And the reason I, the reason I come up with that sort of theory is because of something that's maybe a little more than just theory. Remember the woman who was caught in adultery? 
And they said, the law says you're supposed to stone this woman to death. What do you say? And Jesus, I love it. He said, those of you without sin, cast the first stone. And then he bends down and starts writing in the sand. And the, and the Greek word there is katagraphene. It means to write against. What was Jesus writing against? We don't know for sure. But as he wrote, these guys are like, we're gonna stone her to death. What do you say? And as Jesus is writing one by one from oldest to youngest, they drop their stones and go home. And we don't know what Jesus was writing, but I have another theory. There's Jesus, Motel 6, Jerusalem, 25 AD. And the oldest guy's like, uh, kunk, drops his rock. I think I hear my wife calling, pure, he's gone. You know, Capernaum, uh, you know, the sleazy eight hotel uh, or whatever. Uh, and then the next guy, oh, kunk, I gotta go home too. Pew, pew, one by one, whatever Jesus was writing made them one by one from oldest to youngest go home. Uh, those of you that are without sin, and they all had sin, and Jesus knew all those sins. So I wonder if Jesus is actually saying stuff that probably is convicting some of those dudes to the, to the quick. They knew that they were breakers of the Sabbath, but they were just trying to trap him. I love that Jesus, he, he, knowing all things, he always gives these amazing answers. But, but then I love what he does. It's verse 13. Then said he to the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make, known, make, uh, make him known. And they all went and made him known. It's an amazing story of healing. And Jesus was healing all these people, but this was the one they were gonna trap him. And, and, and this, is, this is what they do. Like, can you imagine the craziness of this situation? I mean, just their response. The guy gets healed, so what do they do? They go, praise be to the Lord for his healing. No, how can we destroy him? We're threatened by him. They're actually just totally against Jesus in a place that, as it turns out, should have been a place where Jesus was completely welcome. You see, this, this raises some interesting observations I'd like to make in this story and things we can learn from. And there's plenty more, I'm sure. I'm just gonna give you three. First of all, notice with me, and you can jot this down in your notes. Notice with me the sad synagogue. This synagogue is in sad condition. Why? Well, the synagogue was supposed to be a place of meeting to gather around and focus on the Lord. That was the purpose of a synagogue. But its very purpose, well, what was happening that day? As it turns out, God shows up in their synagogue that Sabbath day. Kind of a big deal. Um, can you imagine if, if I said, hey, uh, Athey Creek, this Sunday we have a special guest. Jesus is here. Uh, most of us say, whoa, Jesus. But that's actually what happens, as it turns out, every Sunday. Jesus is here. Um, but a lot of us kind of forget about that or even don't care. Here's God, Jesus, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, who comes and visits this synagogue. And what are the religious do leaders doing? Well, the, the language here is kind of interesting. Do you notice in verse nine, it says, when Jesus was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. Not, you know, our synagogue or the synagogue or even my synagogue. Jesus went into their synagogue. It was their synagogue, but it sure wasn't Jesus's. And Jesus wasn't even welcome there from the religious leaders. What a crazy irony. The very place where God was supposed to be exalted at the synagogue was the very place God was being rejected. 
And one of the things we learn from this is uh, the sad state of the synagogue. Is that the same sad state of the church of so-called Jesus Christ in America or around the world? Because there's churches called the Church of Jesus Christ that they're not about the true biblical Jesus Christ. They're actually into all kinds of other stuff that's totally whacked. Um, and, and that's one of the things at Athe Creek, we, we really do pray about this as a team of leaders and our elders and pastors. We're constantly saying, Lord, how do we make you the centerpiece of Athe Creek? We don't want this to be anything but truly a place where Jesus is doing his work, where his word is preached, where Jesus is worshiped and loved and prayed and all this stuff. That's what we want for Athe Creek. And we constantly say, Lord, how can we do that more? We want more of you, less of us. John the Baptist said, oh, that I may decrease so that he may increase. And I think that's what a good, healthy church does. But sadly, I think like this sad synagogue, there's a lot of sad churches where Jesus wouldn't even be welcome. What are some of the signs of a church where Jesus isn't welcome? Well, this is where I, I wonder if Jesus came to Athey, would he say, this is my church? Or would he say, this is your church? That, that, that makes me nervous. That's why the other day I was talking to you guys about whatever you do, don't say, hey, I go over to Brett's church. Don't say that. We're ma you're making me real nervous because it's sure not that. Now I understand why some people may have said that over the time because years and years ago, I moved from Southern Oregon and we, we started a church up here in 1996. And so some people would say, well, Brett started a church over there, whatever. But the language of that makes me really uncomfortable because this is not Brett's church um, and it's not even Athey Creek's church or anything like that. We're just part of the church of Jesus Christ. And, and if we could make sure that that's actually kind of ingrained in our thinking. So when you're telling your friends, don't say, I'm going over to Brett's church, don't say that. Uh, but say, man, we're gonna go to the church, which is his church, Jesus Christ's, his church. And, and, and by the way, some churches would deny uh, someone who looked like Jesus or even acted like Jesus. These guys were in for saying, let's get rid of Jesus. I'm reminded of a story, um, you know, remember when Jesus talked about, even unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Like, how do you treat the least of these? Um, years and years ago, we had a young couple, great couple. They were a nice couple, very polite. They got saved, accepted Christ uh, uh, back in the school days of Athey Creek. Well, about five, six, seven years later, um, they uh, went on a trip and they were like, Brett, we're going to Texas to visit some family and we're gonna go visit a church. I'm like, cool. They were asking if I knew of a church and I didn't really know of one in the town they were going to. So they looked up in the phone book and there was some church. They, so they did what they knew. Uh, they were Athey Creekers. They got up Sunday morning, put on their flip-flops and their shorts and a t-shirt. And they went with their big Bibles and they just walked right into a church uh, and they made two steps in and two of the big deacons wearing suits and ties, they stopped them at the door and said, I'm sorry, you can't come in here wearing that. And I thought, oh man, see the, the couple told me about this later and I thought, wow, if those deacons, I would put them in a Bible trivia contest. I bet you that young couple, they knew the Bible and loved Jesus with, with a true heart. You see, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And, and God forbid that there's churches out there, and I know there are, they, they need to repent. Because Jesus walked into the synagogue and guess what he was wearing? His normal everyday clothes. Um, that's what Jesus was wearing and his disciples too. We know that because Jesus really had only one set of garments. Um, and he wasn't wearing a tuxedo or a fancy Armani suit or anything like that. Oh, Brett, that's Jesus's day and, and, and we should dress up for this and that. Uh, you can if you want to, uh, but the Bible doesn't say thou shalt dress up for church. 
Nowhere does it say that. Now, at Eighth Greek, we're kind of the opposite. We have to be careful. You know, we're all here, uh, happy in our clothes and stuff. And then some guy walks in with a suit. And we're like, "Ooh, we better pray for that guy. Hopefully, <laughs> he gets saved. You know, accept Christ." And I, I'm just kidding. If you're wearing a suit, man, God bless you. We need class in this church, and you're <laughs> you're helping us out a little bit. So thank you for that. Uh, we want you to feel welcome here. But isn't it interesting that you know this this uh, a church would say, "Yeah, you can't come in to this place of worship." I think that's an abomination. Um, and, and I wonder if Jesus wouldn't even be welcome in churches like that. Um, that's the thing you have to kind of be careful about. Um, you know, it was their synagogue, not his synagogue. And we want Athey Creek to be his church, not our church. Um, what, by the way, when, when we see how Jesus behaved when he walked into the church, I wonder if we could learn from that. Because Jesus walks into the church and what's the first thing he kind of fixates on or, or notices? He notices the man with the withered hand. If you read Luke's account of this story, it, all, it kind of implies that Jesus already kind of had focused a little bit on this, um, this, this man with the withered hand. And Jesus finds the weakest, uh, the guy that's hurting, the guy that's um, probably an outcast, um, and he finds him. That's who Jesus sort of focuses on. And this should make sense to us, by the way, because remember what Jesus taught us a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter nine, we saw when the Pharisees said, you know, and his disciples, why does your master eat with the publicans and sinners? Remember we talked about that? And Jesus heard that, he said to them, he said that they, they that be whole don't need a physician, but they that are sick, but go and learn what that means. He says, I will have mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, not the religious practices of sacrifice of the Jews that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, for uh, mercy, he says. For I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we have to constantly be aware that the church of Jesus Christ, even as this synagogue should have been, a place where anybody could come and be welcome and cared for. And Jesus looked for the person who was the least common denominator in the, in the whole room. Jesus came, even as Luke 19.10, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, that was what he was doing. Um, so in, in that synagogue, they'd take the hurting, as was the tradition, and say, good luck, go stand in the corner. But Jesus was focusing on the person who's hurting. Here's a question that might be a little convicting. What do you look for when you come to Athey Creek? And I have to say, uh, as an old timer Christian who's been going to church for over 50 years of my life, I have seen that often there's two kinds of people and one, one group, it gets kind of ugly, I'm just gonna say. And that's the people that come to church looking for the people who they can really identify with and, and maybe network or maybe you know, have hip and cool kids that hang out together as long as they're hip and cool enough. And, and as long as you've got sort of mingle and, and, and you know, maybe some financial advantage somehow or, or you know, getting to know, like there's, there's people that just kind of go around looking for what they get out of other people or even out of a church. But then there's other people that come and say, who is the most hurting person in this room? And is there someone that I can pray for and encourage? Is there someone who needs financial help? Is there someone who I can pour into and, and love on and the, looking for the least and the lowest rather than who can help me with my reputation and my family being all tied in and linked in with all the cool kids? And if you're the guy, the gal that likes the cool kids, uh, you might want to kind of change your heart because as it turns, turns out, Jesus sort of always did the opposite. So far, Jesus is focused on the leper, the Gentile centurion, um, the woman, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, who was an outcast in those days. 
Um, so far, Jesus is constantly looking for the people that are hurting, not what can he get out of it. Um, Jesus was really the great physician seeking who was hurting and in real need. Um, by the way, uh, this is a funny thing because that's the way a lot of people approach church is what do I get out of it? When really we should be saying, what can I, what can I do to participate? That's why I love AC Creekers. You know, we're at a place right now, I'm so thankful. It wasn't always like this. It was, especially in our early days, but we have like, you know, I always mention there's 1800 volunteers that make this church go. 1,800 volunteers that make these weekend services, all five of them that are full, you know. Um, it's, it's so cool because there's, there's 1,800 people that are saying, we're gonna come here and give of our time and energy and effort to make everybody else who needs to hear about Jesus, to hear the gospel, we're gonna make it where they can, you know, park. Uh, and, and you know what, the parking people, uh, just heads up, they're, they're abused. As you come racing in and, you know, grouchily almost run them over and then don't go where they tell you to go. And these are just people uh, who, by the way, are high caliber people. If you only knew who they were, if there was, you know, the, the Stratus thing where the, the, the person, the CEO would be sitting in the front. Well, at Athe Creek, they're the ones out directing traffic, by the way. It's kind of cool because they, they have more of a heart to serve and people wiping snotty noses of children, and people serving coffee, and people running cameras and doing all, like there's just people that come saying, what can I do to contribute? That's a great, that's a great thing, I love that. But there's a story when we first started Athey at the middle school, um, we were maybe six or eight months into this church, everybody was new, um, and it was just kind of a weird time because everybody was trying to figure out, is this the church we're gonna go to? And uh, is Brett a weirdo? Uh, what's, what is this? And we were all kind of, it's a strange, but, but it, was, it was what was going on. Well, my next door neighbor that lived in Sherwood right next to us, um, he said, I'm gonna come to your church this next Sunday. And I said, really? And I said, well, great. And he had been at churches all his life. He was an old time, you know, Christian, middle-aged guy. Um, and he came to church. Well, the next week I saw him putting his trash cans out and I asked him, hey, uh, I said, what'd you think of church? He said, I found it interesting that no one came up and said hello to me. Now, B, being somewhat of a sarcastic idiot sometimes, <laughs> I said, are you kidding? Is, where's the cameras? Like, is this a joke? And he's like, what are you talking about? They, I, they didn't say hi to me. And I said, um, did you know that you weren't the only new person there? Everyone there was new. And you're the old timer Christian that should have been asking how people were doing and get to know people. Like, why would, you see, I did that. I kind of turned it around back on him. I enjoyed it too. <laughs> He was the guy, he was the mature Christian that should have been loving on and reaching out. And, but I found it interesting, nobody said hi to me. I was, I was like, want to say, you wimp, what a weirdo. But I didn't say that, thankfully. Um, but that's, that, there's a funny thing where it's all about me. Remember that? We talked about that a few weeks ago too. But when you come to church, of course you come to be filled and recharged and taught in the word and grow with your walk. That's a key and, and I'm, I'm all for that. But, but the more mature believer asks, Lord, how can you use me today when I go to church? Who, who can I reach out to? And that's the way Jesus approached the synagogue. Um, and, and, and that's why this synagogue is in such a sad state. Here, God in the flesh is in their synagogue. Not only are they not listening to him, or caring, but they're looking to do him in and they're rejecting him. Man, I, I hope that's not the sad state of the church of Jesus Christ today. And I think there's evidence where we reject if you're not wearing the right clothes or if you don't say the right things or have the right income or this or that, churches will exclude you. And I think that's a huge, huge mistake. So the sad synagogue. Number two, the lunacy of legalism. 
We see the lunacy of legalism here. And legalism, oh, it leads to death. And we already talked about the prohibitions of, you know, <clears throat> healing. And Jesus was saying, I'm gonna do good. He, he logically, I like how he logically does this whole uh, sheep thing. Um, like we talked about earlier, like we were pretty sure maybe one of those Pharisees had a sheep in the hole. Um, by the way, it reminds me, all we like sheep have gone astray. We all fall in the hole. Um, there's so much to this story. By the way, have you seen this? I, wanted, I brought this video for this service. You're the only service that gets this, so. Uh, but I thought you should see this. This is a sheep that fell in a hole. You gotta, this just cracked me up. They're trying to rescue this poor sheep out of the hole, just like Jesus said. And off he goes, free. <laughs> oh, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's some of you in this room. Right? Now look at slow-mo, slow-mo, Anyway, uh, sorry, um, where were we? The lunacy of legalism, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, so, so Jesus, Jesus, by the way, I have to say this uh, in Portlandia area because some people don't understand this. Jesus makes a point. People are more important than sheep. Do you understand that? If you're one of these extreme environmentalists and say, no, no, we need to kill off the population and let animals take over the world. Um, there's people saying that. By the way, watch this. This is coming more and more. It's already happening, but it's gonna, you watch. They're tying uh, global warming, climate change, and the destruction of the earth. They're tying it to reproductive rights. Are you guys seeing this? Uh, they're saying climate change is part of the problem of reproductive rights uh, and abortion. And they're saying we need to mi minimize the population because of the earth and all this stuff. Um, you can think that if you want, but it's totally opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches uh, be fruitful and multiply. And children are a heritage and a blessing. And the world is changing its view on that saying, yeah, whatever you do, don't have kids. And so there are actually women proudly saying, I love murdering babies uh, because of the whole abortion controversy. It, it's not hard to find. It's, it's out there all over the place. But, but there's this notion that animals, the whales or the, the snowy plover or the birds or whatever that are endangered are, are more important than people. And there's a whole worldview of there like that. Jesus actually clarifies and says, sheep are great and everything, but uh, people are more important than sheep. That's what he says, logically. He says, uh, how much more then is a man better than a sheep? And then he says, Isn't it, is it, then what? Wherefore is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day? And Jesus' obvious answer is, of course it's good to do good on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was always meant to be a blessing, not a time to check your brain out and say, well, whatever you do, don't help someone on the Sabbath day. Um, and and this, is, this is such an important thing. And so, um, you know, r religion and legalism, what it does is it starts making it so people actually don't get any help. It actually makes life worse. So the hurting, the troubled, the withered hand man, he's gonna get no help at all if it was left up to these Pharisees. And that's the problem. When people become legalistic, there's no help. The law kills, the Bible says, those rules and regulations. And, and sadly, we as Christians put unnecessarily, uh, or unnecessary burdens that aren't even biblical on people. I was guilty of this as a little kid because I was sort of raised to think that, man, if you smoke cigarettes, you're smoking devil sticks and you're gonna go to hell because you're smoking cigarettes. And that's kind of the way that, that we all viewed it back in those days. Now, I'm not arguing for smoking cigarettes. If you wanna have a lungs that look like an ashtray, knock yourself out. 
Um, but you'll die early. Uh, but see, I have to be careful about this because you know what? Smoking cigarettes is not the unpardonable sin. In fact, I think uh, where it hits a little closer to home, uh, you could die by smoking cigarettes, but you can also die by eating a double quarter pounder from McDonald's. They're both gonna kill you. And they both go into your temple. That's the fact, but your body is a temple to the Holy Ghost. Um, oh, so the Lord's uh, okay with a quarter pounder, but he's not so good with the cigarette. Well, both will kill you. Um, uh, and you know, the struggle is real, I'm just saying. We all, we all struggle, but when people start getting weird about our failures and, and sin and mistakes, there's no real help for that. Legalism never helps, but the grace of God, that's what we all, that's what we all need. Christ, who says, I, I can fix that. I can heal you and I can forgive you of your sins. And as you repent of your sins, the Lord says, I can help with that. So the lunacy of legalism, it was steeped in that synagogue there in Capernaum that day. But fortunately, Jesus rose above that and said, I'm not gonna get bogged down in this weird legalism. But he just goes and heals the guy. Even though it was against their stupid laws, Jesus does it. Now keep in mind, those laws were not the law of Moses. Um, those were ones they made up later to try to clamp down on people. And it was, it was a power grab and all that. By the way, the lunacy of legalism you know what it looks like? It looks a little bit like this, and it has to do with how you come to church. Let's, let's focus for just a minute on these Pharisees. Why were the Pharisees even there in the synagogue? Um, and the answer is kind of shocking when you think about it. The first reason the Pharisees were there is they did not come to worship, but to watch. God forbid we have Pharisees here this morning who, who came to church not to worship the Lord, but say, Let's see what this church is doing. Let's see what these people, and, and with, a, with a sort of a critical eye watching rather than worshiping. Some people come as sort of spectators. Um, church should be more than just coming and, and watching. Um, I think sometimes churches, we've done this to ourselves where it becomes almost like a performance. We have become a performance where we're trying to entertain. Um, Athe, we work at not trying to do that. Um, our worship team, they learn to play their instruments skillfully. The Bible says play skillfully as unto the Lord. So they're doing that. But we're really not wanting to do a performance. We want you to engage in worship. Um, that's why we don't have smoke rolling off the stage and lights flashing around because that starts to feel kind of a performance. And I'm okay with performances if you're going to a Christmas program or a concert. Like that's wonderful, great. And you're going to watch, that's okay. Church really shouldn't be a place where you're just watching. Church should be a place where you're worshiping. So this pharisaical attitude is like, let's see what's gonna happen here. And they were watching rather than worshiping. Number two, um, not only do they not come to worship, but to watch, but they did not come to find fellowship. They came to find fault. Are you a fault finder? Some of you are gifted as sin sniffers. <laughs> Iniquity inquisitors. There's some people that I have the gift of finding fault. And it's not a gift, it's called sin as it turns out. You're being sinful in that. Uh, you know, they didn't wanna uh, uh, find fellowship with imperfect unbelievers. They wanted to find fault with imperfect unbelievers. And they were sitting back sort of watching. You know, th there's a story that's, that's horrifying. If you're in that camp, guess who else is in your camp? A guy by the name of Judas Iscariot. Not somebody you wanna be in the camp with. Do you remember there in John chapter 12, verses three through six, there's a story where Mary takes this costly box of ointment, uh, worth 300 pence. It's like a year's salary, you know, like $70,000 a year or whatever. That'd be today. She takes this ointment and she opens it and pours it out on Jesus's feet and then wipes her feet, his feet with her hair. 
And the Bible says, and the room, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. It was an act of worship that was costly and it was sincere. Meanwhile, Judas Iscariot is off in the corner going, oh, brother. And he kind of speaks thunder his brother like, hey, man, we could have sold that for 300 pence and we could have given it to the poor. But the Bible tells us, but Judas didn't care about the poor. He was a thief and he carried the bag. He was like the disciple treasurer and he liked to skim money off of the, the money. He thought I could have had some money off of that. What a waste. Well, Jesus, knowing what he was saying and thinking, he turns and looks at Judas Iscariot. And do you remember what the first words he said to her was? Anybody? Anybody? Leave her alone. Like that's, that's pretty, like, can you imagine? Here's this amazing act of worship and the fragrance and it's just a special moment. And then Jesus turns to Judas and says, leave her alone. I wonder if some of you might have to hear that from Jesus today. Leave her alone. What do you mean, Brett? Did you come to church and you're critical and going, oh brother, these guys think they lift their hands in the service like it's doing something dumb. Even though the Bible says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary. Oh, but Brett, the lady three rows in front of me, she wasn't just lifting her hands. She was washing the windows, man. She was doing this way. And, and look, and, and the Lord would say to you, leave her alone. Like you're being this Judas Iscariot kind of person. Do you really want to do that? Or should you be, instead of you know, finding fault or being critical of the way they do certain things, I wonder if maybe you should be worshiping the Lord yourself because he's worthy of our worship. Um, there, there's this weird human sinful tendency to be critical and judgmental. Now, I'm not arguing that you shouldn't discern whether a church is doing heretical practices or you know, if the teaching is you know, wrong or like, yeah, there's a certain discernment that you're supposed to have and, and, and stuff like that. But once you get kind of past that, then you can, and some of you are like, well, I'm really good at that. And then you take it and you start being critical of all the little minutia. And that's where you become pretty much Judas Iscariot. Watch out for that. Number three, they did not come for communion, but to critique. Uh, they were just looking for things they could nitpick about Jesus and what he was gonna do. And, uh, you know, um, I think uh, instead of coming to do all these things, this is what a Pharisee does. These are the people Jesus sort of yelled at and said, you whitewashed tombs and you guys are just open sepulchers of tombs of death. Like Jesus really nails these guys. You don't wanna be part of this team. But that's the bad, bad situation. So we got the sad synagogue, we've got the, the lunacy of legalism. Boy, brother, this is kind of heavy. Here's this beautiful miracle story and you're making it all depressing. Well, that's the bad part. The third and final point I wanna say is something glorious and I wanna remind you of the truth we've covered even recently and that is this, God's commandments are his enablements. Something that we learn from this story is God's commandments are his enablements. I love this because there's so many promises and commands given to you and me in the word. And a lot of times we dismiss them. And a lot of people dismiss them as impossible. Well, you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. Even though we're given the command. What do you mean, Brett? How does that apply to this? Jesus, what did he command the man with the withered hand to do? Stretch forth your hand. Now, that guy with the withered hand, he could have been very logical and said, are you kidding me? I was at the doctor. They told me, my muscles have atrophied over years. They've shriveled up and my hand's in a locked position. It's withered. There's nothing I can do about it. Are you kidding me? Like, you, the guy could have had that approach. Now, the reason I don't think he took that approach is maybe because Jesus had a way about him that was, well... The way that it says in the Bible that when people heard Jesus, they, they saw him as speaking as one with authority, not like the Pharisees. 
That's what it says. So maybe when Jesus said, stretch forth your hand, the guy's like, whoa, this guy's serious. And he sensed something about it that he thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna risk all and I'm gonna try to stretch forth my withered hand. It hasn't been stretched forth for years, but I'm gonna do it. And the Bible, don't you love it? I mean, I almost get chills when I read this. Jesus said, stretch forth your hand and he stretched it forth and it was restored whole like the other hand. What a life changer. By the way, Jesus is into that. He's into changing lives. And that's what he does. The Pharisees couldn't care less about this guy, but Jesus actually loved this guy. And God gave, Jesus gave him the commandment and he did it. Here's the problem that I see today. We have become so smart, too smart for our own good. We sit around, well, you can't really do that. It's not that simple, Pastor Brett. Uh, when the Bible says this, it's too, that's too simple. We actually need 12 steps or we actually need this medication, or we actually need that doctor, and we need three weeks or 20 weeks of, of therapy, and then we need to go to this and that. And, and we've just overcomplicated some things that actually, I wonder if the Lord wants to do some miraculous things with just some of his simple promises of the word. I find it interesting, there's people that struggle and they, they oftentimes are not willing to do the simple thing, stretch forth your hand. Do you remember the leper in the Old Testament? He was a military general from Syria. And, and, and you know, the prophet said, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And the king blew up. He's like, what? I, or the, 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 the military leader's like, I, I, the rivers in Syria are better than this dumpy little river in Israel. I'm not dipping myself in that mud hole. And he marches off and starts headed home. But some of his soldiers kind of go, uh, dude, you know, I know the river's kind of nasty and all that, but what does it hurt? Come on, just try the seven dips. And the guy's like, oh brother, okay, whatever. And he goes in, real faith here, you know. And he dips himself seven times. And the seventh time he comes out and his skin is as new as a baby's bottom. Man, he's, he's healed from leprosy. And, he, and, and the guy's like, this is amazing. And, and see, it, it's one of those things, he almost missed it by saying, yeah, whatever. Dip yourself in the Jordan, that's too easy or too yucky or whatever but he almost missed it. In the same way, the Lord tells us things that are promises or even God's commandments that are his enablements. For example, you might be a guy who struggles with pornography and you're like, um, I've tried and I'm gonna, I wanna quit. I've, I joined this group and I read that you know, article and I've got this accountability group and, I'm, and people still struggle. But at the same time, the Bible actually handles it pretty simply. Like for example, all these simplicity promises of the Bible. Here's a good one. Struggling with pornography, here's what the Bible says. This is what you do, flee fornication. That's pretty simple. Oh, it's not that easy. It is, the Bible wouldn't say if, it, if the Lord says, this is what I want you to do, run for your life, flee fornication. The word fornication in the English word, it comes from the, the Greek word porneia. Oh, that's too simple. Nope, uh, I believe God's commandments are his enablers. When he tells a man to flee fornication, if he actually does what the Bible says, the Lord will then, see the guy had to start stretching forth his hand, but the Lord took care of the rest. That's what we're looking for. Um, maybe you might say, my marriage is a mess. So we need you know, to go to a 10 week counseling session and we need this and this. Well, maybe you do, or maybe you can just do what the Bible says, dude, husbands love your wives. That's a commandment. God's commandments are his enablements. And as you love your wife, well, what if I don't love her, Brett? She's unlovely. His hand was withered. And as he started to stretch it out, his hand became whole. Just like you, if you start loving your wife and you make that mind change, 
then your heart starts to change and God does that part. He does the miraculous part where you're actually like, wow, she is lovely and I should have loved her a long time ago. Um, God's commandments, well, Brad, that's great for the husband, but what about my goofy husband? Let the wife see that she reverence her husband. That's a commandment. Reverence or respect is some of your translation, but the King Jimmy puts it reverence. Let the wife see that she reverence. That's a strong word. It is. It's only used twice in the Bible, the word reverence. And the Greek word that's used there is only used twice in all the scriptures. One time it's used how we're to reverence God. And the other one's how the wife's supposed to reverence her husband. Brett, are you kidding me? See, it's funny because I, I, heard, I feel for you because we reverence God and God is reverenceable. And you go, yeah, of course we should reverence God. But your husband, yeah, he does look kind of like a goofball. I'm sorry. But it doesn't say reverence or, or respect your husband if he's respectable. It just says, just do this. Um, somebody should come up with a, like a, um, it's a great theme, just do it. They should use that somewhere. That's what the Bible says. This is the simplicity of his promises. And his promises, his commandments are his enablements. And if you just start doing it, the Lord will take care of the unshriveling part of the withered hand. Um, you know, uh, you know it, it, it's interesting. Some people say, I don't like people. Bible says, love one another. That's a heart issue. Yeah, change your mind. God will change your heart. That's the miracle that God will do. It's God's commandments are his enablements. But I don't like people. Uh, they've wronged me. Be ye kind one to another. This is what the Bible tells you to do. Uh, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. It says there in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Um, uh, but, but people say, it's not that easy. But it is because he's the one. Without him, we can do nothing. But, but, but it's interesting, the old saying, I've heard preachers say this of old, you know, without him, we can't. But without us, he won't. That's true for this man with the withered hand. Without Jesus, the guy couldn't have unstretched his hand. But Jesus left enough to him where he had to do a certain other responsibility. He said, stretch forth your hand. And as he did what he was supposed to do, then Jesus said, I can work with that. You're gonna do the stretching, I'm gonna do the healing. Same thing's true with being kind one to another. Uh, you know, uh, my finances are in trouble. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Yeah, but what about my money? My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. These are promises of God's word. God's commandments are his enablements. Well, Brett, I just think that's too complicated. Well, if you can sit there and keep spending your money for psychotherapy and medicines and failure and continue to that. Or you can at least say, Lord, I'm gonna have faith enough to know that you healed the man with the withered hand, so I'm gonna trust that you can heal me with my problems, whatever that might be. And you kind of ask that question, what's withered on you? Is kind of a question to sort of ask. Um, it's interesting because um, this, this, you know, stretching forth is not that easy sometimes. I'll admit that. Um, by the way, the Luke's account of this same story, he even has to do a little more than just stretching forth his hand. Uh, picture him in the back of the room of the synagogue. And in Luke 6, it says, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to the man, which had the withered hand, rise up, stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. It's almost like he made the man with the withered hand come and stand in front of everybody. And the reason I point that out is he had to do a little more than just stretch forth his hand, according to Luke's account. And by the way, Luke's account tells us that it was his right hand, like a good doctor. Uh, you know, uh, Luke's a doctor and he says it was his right hand. Uh, you know, when you go to surgery and they X the leg they're gonna do the operation on because they don't wanna get the wrong leg. 
Um, that's kind of what Luke does here. It's like, okay, it was his right hand that was withered and he made him get in front of everybody. And that's where you kind of see a little bit of risk. This guy had to take a risk standing in front of the crowd. That's one of our greatest fears is being in front of people. But, but here Jesus says, stand in the middle and I will heal you as you stretch forth your hand. This is what God does for him. You know, I love this because um, in God's commandments or his enablements, um, sometimes some of you are almost afraid to believe it's that simple. And you even risk saying, I'm gonna risk looking like an idiot if I just trust that God's gonna help me with this. But risk is part of the deal. I love the old poem called Risk. It goes something like this. To laugh is to risk appearing a fool. To weep is risk to risk seeming sentimental. To reach out to another is to risk involvement. To expose feelings is to risk exposing your true self. To place your ideas and dreams before a crowd is to risk their loss. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To live is to risk dying. To hope is to risk despair. To try is to risk failure. But risks must be taken because the greatest hazard in this life is to risk nothing. The person who risks nothing does nothing, has nothing, is nothing. He may avoid suffering and sorrow, but he cannot learn, feel, change, grow, or live. Chained by his servitude, he is a slave who has forfeited all of his freedom. Only a person who risks is truly free. Um, I, I wonder if that might just be what the Lord would have you to do is maybe some of you, where, where are you withered? Is your heart withered away and need to be fixed? Um, do you need help with love or to forgive someone who's wronged you? Stretch forth your hand. Or are you not trusting the Lord in times of difficulty? Stretch forth your hand. Don't make excuses. Remember the old saying, um, once you become good at making excuses, only one person knew this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once you become good at making excuses, that's all you'll be good for. And uh, I feel like that in spiritual truths where, we, oh, you can't get help with that because, well, it's harder and it's more complicated and psychology says and doctors say. And meanwhile, the Lord's saying, stretch forth your hand see what I can do. You know, before we pack it up, I think it'd be good for us to just do a little introspective prayer and thinking, Lord, there's so much here we've talked about. Maybe you are a critical person and you've come with a critical spirit and the Lord's convicted your heart. Good news, good news for you, critical person. The Lord forgives you. He loves you and he'll forgive you for your sins. Um, maybe you've not trusted the Lord and you've been trusting everything else. Good news, the Lord forgives you and he loves you. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. If you're an unsaved person and not a Christian here, you're still in your sins, but this is good news. Jesus wants to heal you and all you gotta do is not stretch forth your hand. All you do have to do is believe that you're a sinner, repent of those sins and accept what Jesus did on the cross. He died in your place, took your penalty. You and I deserve eternal death and hell, but because God became a man, lived among us and then died on the cross for the sins of the world, his innocent blood was shed that anyone who will cry out to Jesus and say, forgive me, he says, I will forgive you and you will be saved. In fact, the biggest stretching forth of the hand in your life might just be accepting Jesus Christ as your personal savior. How do you do that? Uh, do you sign up for a church membership? Nope. How do you do that? Pay money? Nope. Do we get your name, number, and blood type? Nope, nope, and nope. What you do is just between you and the Lord right now is you say, I'm a sinner and I acknowledge that and accept that through prayer. Say, Lord, I believe that your son Jesus came, died on the cross and rose from the grave, just like he said he did. And that's why the whole world, by the way, was 
turned upside down after Jesus did that. Um, and you can be a part of that. And this is how you, the ultimate healing is to be saved from your sins and go to heaven. We as Christians get to celebrate that. And I'd like to do that. If you, if you need to do that right now, if you're a Christian, do that right now. But as we go to the Lord's table, Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. And so as Christians, we like to do what Jesus said by taking a little piece of bread and a, and a cup of, 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 in our case, juice, or some churches use wine. Um, but the idea is we're remembering what Jesus did for us. So if you would, would you get out those little communion packs that you got as you came in? If you didn't, by the way, uh, no sweat. There's some guys and gals that'll come up and uh, make sure you got them. Just make sure you wave at them and they'll, they'll get you set up. But what, what you do is you peel back this little clear level to get to the little matzah bread circle there. And then you peel back the foil layer to get to the cup. And you can sort of get that all ready right now if you wish. But uh, maybe even more important, get your heart ready. Because good news, the sins we've committed, the junk we've done, the lies you've told, the games you've played, the stuff that nobody knows about except for you and the Lord, guess what? He says, I can forgive that. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so that's what this is all about. We just like to come clean before the Lord. And so Lord, we do pray. We do ask that you would do a work in our lives, in your church, Lord. On this Sunday morning, we wanna come clean to you. Forgive us for our lack of faith, Lord. Forgive us for our critical spirit. We pray you'd forgive us for coming and only getting that which is helpful for us and not looking to the needs of others. Forgive us, Lord, if we've ever not welcomed you into our temple, into this church, or into our lives, Lord. More of you, less of us, that's what we need, Lord. May this church, Athey Creek, always be a Christ-centered church. We don't wanna center on anything for it's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Jesus. So we come to you and we prepare our hearts even right now, Lord.